Chapter Ten of What Diantha Did. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betsy Bush, March two thousand nine. What Diantha Did by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Chapter Ten Union House. "'We are weak,' said the sticks, and men broke them. "'We are weak,' said the threads, and were torn. "'Till new thoughts came, and they spoke them, "'till the faggot and the rope were born. "'For the faggot men find is resistant, "'and they anchor on the rope's taut length. "'Even grasshoppers combined are a force, "'the farmers find, in union there is strength.' Ross Warden endured his grocery business, strove with it, toiled at it, concentrated his scientific mind on alien tasks of financial calculation and practical psychology, but he liked it no better. He had no interest in business, no desire to make money, no skill in salesmanship. But there were five mouths at home, sweet, affectionate, feminine mouths, no doubt, but requiring food. Also, two in the kitchen, wider and requiring more food. And there were five backs at home to be covered, to use the absurd metaphor, as if all one needed for clothing was a four-foot patch. The amount and quality of the covering was an unceasing surprise to Ross, and he did not do justice to the fact that his womenfolk really saved a good deal by doing their own sewing. In his heart he longed always to be free of the whole hated load of tradesmanship. Continually his thoughts went back to the hope of selling out the business and buying a ranch. "'I could make it keep us anyhow,' he would plan to himself. "'And I could get at that guinea-pig idea. Or maybe hens would do. He had a theory of his own, or a personal test of his own, rather, which he wished to apply to a well-known theory. It would take some years to work it out, and a great many fine pigs, and be of no possible value financially. I'll do it some time, he always concluded, which was cold comfort. His real grief at losing the companionship of the girl he loved was made more bitter by a total lack of sympathy with her aims, even if she achieved them, in which he had no confidence. He had no power to change his course, and tried not to be unpleasant about it, but he had to express his feelings now and then. "'Are you coming back to me?' he wrote. "'How can you bear to give so much pain to everyone who loves you? Is your wonderful salary worth more to you than being here with your mother, with me? How can you say you love me and ruin both our lives like this? I cannot come to see you. I would not come to see you, calling at the back door, finding the girl I love in a cap and apron.' Can you not see it is wrong, utterly wrong, all this mad escapade of yours? Suppose you do make a thousand dollars a year. I shall never touch your money, you know that. I cannot even offer you a home except with my family, and I know how you feel about that. I do not blame you. But I am as stubborn as you are, dear girl. I will not live on my wife's money. You will not live in my mother's house and we are drifting apart. It is not that I care less for you, dear, or at all for anyone else, but this is slow death, that's all. 
Mrs. Warden wrote now and then, and expatiated on the sufferings of her son, and his failing strength under the unnatural strain, till Diantha grew to dread her letters more than any pain she knew. Fortunately, they came seldom. Her own family was much impressed by the thousand dollars, and found the occupation housekeeper a long way more tolerable than that of housemaid, a distinction which made Diantha smile rather bitterly. Even her father wrote to her once, suggesting that if she chose to invest her salary according to his advice, he could double it for her in a year, maybe treble it, in Belgian hairs. They'd double and treble fast enough, she admitted to herself, but she wrote as pleasant a letter as she could, declining his proposition. Her mother seemed stronger, and became more sympathetic as the months passed. Large affairs always appealed to her more than small ones, and she offered valuable suggestions as to the account-keeping of the big house. They all assumed that she was permanently settled in this well-paid position, and she made no confidences. But all summer long she planned and read and studied out her progressive schemes, and strengthened her hold among the working women. Laundress after laundress she studied personally and tested professionally, finding a general level of mediocrity, till finally she hit upon a melancholy Dane, a big, raw-boned, red-faced woman, whose husband had been a miller, but was hurt about the head, so that he was no longer able to earn his living. The huge fellow was docile, quiet, and endlessly strong, but needed constant supervision. "'He'll do anything you tell him, miss, and do it well. But then he'll sit and dream about it. I can't leave him at all.' "'But he'll take the clothes if I give him a paper with directions and come right back.' Poor Mrs. Thorold wiped her eyes and went on with her swift ironing. Diantha offered her the position of laundress at Union House, with two rooms for their own over the laundry. "'There'll be work for him, too,' she said. "'We need a man there. He can do a deal of the heavier work. Be porter, you know. I can't offer him very much, but it will help some.' Mrs. Thorold accepted for both, and considered Diantha as a special providence. There was to be cook and two capable second-maids. The work of the house must be done thoroughly well, Diantha determined, and the food's got to be good, or the girls won't stay. After much consideration, she selected one Juliana, a person of color, for her kitchen. Not the jovial and sloppy personage usually figuring in this character— but a tall, angular, and somewhat cynical woman, a misanthrope, in fact, with a small son. For men she had no respect whatever, but conceded a grudging admiration to Mr. Thorold as the usefulest, bitablest male person she had ever seen. She also extended special sympathy to Mrs. Thorold on account of her peculiar burden, and the Swedish woman had no antipathy to her color, and seemed to take a melancholy pleasure in Juliana's caustic speeches. Diantha offered her the place, boy and all. He can be bell-boy and help you in the kitchen, too, can't you, Hector? Hector rolled large, adoring eyes at her, but said nothing. His mother accepted the position, but without enthusiasm. I can't keep no eye on him, miss, if I'm cookin'. Unless you keep your eye on him, there's no work to be got out of any kind of boy. "'What is your last name, Juliana?' Diantha asked her. "'I suppose, as a matter of fact, it's the name of the last nigger I married,' she replied. "'There was several of em, all having different names. And to tell you the truth, Miss Bell, I got clean mixed amongst em. But Juliana's my name. 
world without end amen so diantha had to waive her theories about the surnames of servants in this case did they all die she asked with polite sympathy no dey didn't none of em die worse luck i am afraid you have seen much trouble juliana she continued sympathetically they deserted you i suppose juliana laid her long spoon upon the table and stood up with great gravity no she said again dey didn't none of em desert me on no occasion i divorced em marital difficulties in bulk were beyond diantha's comprehension and she dropped to the subject union house opened in the autumn the vanished pepper trees were dim with dust in orchardina streets as the long rainless summer drew to a close but the social atmosphere fairly sparkled with new interest those who had not been away chattered eagerly with those who had and both with the incoming tide of winter visitors that girl of mrs porne's has started her housekeeping shop that miss bell has got mrs weatherstone fairly infatuated with her crazy schemes do you know that bell girl has actually taken union house going to make a girls club of it did you ever hear of such a thing diantha bell's really going to try to run her absurd undertaking right here in orchardina they did not know that the young captain of industry had deliberately chosen orchardina as her starting point on account of the special conditions the even climate was favorable to going out by the day or the delivering of meals the number of wealthy residents gave opportunity for catering on a large scale the crowding tourists and health seekers made a market for all manner of transient service and cooked food and the constant lack of sufficient or capable servants forced the people into an unwilling consideration of any plan of domestic assistance in a year's deliberate effort diantha had acquainted herself with the rank and file of the town's housemaids and day workers and picked her assistance carefully she had studied the local conditions thoroughly and knew her ground a big faded building that used to be the hotel in orchardina's infant days standing awkward and dingy on a site too valuable for a house lot and not yet saleable as a business block was the working base a half year with mrs weatherstone gave her five hundred dollars in cash besides the one hundred dollars she had saved at mrs porne's and mrs weatherstone's cheerfully offered backing gave her credit i hate to let you said diantha i want to do it all myself you are a painfully perfect person miss bell said her last employer pleasantly but you have ceased to be my housekeeper and i hope you will continue to be my friend as a friend i claim the privilege of being disagreeable if you have a fault it is conceit immovable colossal conceit and obstinacy is that all asked diantha it's all i've found so far gaily retorted mrs weatherstone don't you see child that you can't afford to wait you have reasons for hastening you know i don't doubt you could in a series of years work up this business all stark alone i have every confidence in those qualities i have mentioned but what's the use you'll need credit for groceries and furniture i am profoundly interested in this business i am more than willing to advance a little capital or to insure your credit a man would have sense enough to take me up at once i believe you are right diantha reluctantly agreed and you shan't lose by it her eyes were acutely interested in her progress and showed it in practical ways the new woman's club furnished five families of patrons for the regular service of cooked food 
which soon grew, with satisfaction, to a dozen or so, varying from time to time. The many families with invalids and lonely invalids without families were glad to avail themselves of the special delicacies furnished at Union House. Picnickers found it easier to buy Diantha's marvelous sandwiches than to spend golden morning hours in putting up inferior ones at home, and many who cooked for themselves or kept servants were glad to profit by this outside source on Sunday evenings and days out. There was opposition, too, both the natural resistance of inertia and prejudice, and the active malignity of Mrs. Stadler. The porns were sympathetic and anxious. That place'll cost her all of ten thousand dollars a year, with those twenty-five to feed, and they only pay four dollars and fifty cents a week. I know that, said Mr. Porn. It does look impossible, his wife agreed. But such is my faith in Diantha Bell, I'll back her against Rockefeller. Mrs. Weatherstone was not alarmed at all. If she should fail, which I don't for a moment expect, it won't ruin me, she told Isabel. And if she succeeds, as I firmly believe she will, why, I'd be willing to risk almost anything to prove Mrs. Thadler in the wrong. Mrs. Thadler was making herself rather disagreeable. She used what power she had to cry down the undertaking, and was so actively malevolent that her husband was moved to covert opposition. He never argued with his wife. She was easily ahead of him in that art, and if it came to recriminations, had certain controvertible charges to make against him, which made him angrily silent. He was convinced in a dim way that her ruthless domineering spirit, and the sheer malice she often showed, were more evil things than his own bad habits, and that even in their domestic relation her behavior really caused him more pain and discomfort than he caused her, but he could not convince her of it, naturally. "'That Diantha Bell is a fine girl,' he said to himself, "'a damn fine girl, and as straight as a string.' There had crept out, through the quenchless leak of servants' talk, a very colored version of the incident of Matthew and the transom, and the town had grown so warm for that young gentleman that he had gone to Alaska suddenly to cool off, as it were. His grandmother, finding Mrs. Thadler invincible with this new weapon, and what she had so long regarded as her home, now visibly Mrs. Weatherstone's, had retired in regal dignity to her old Philadelphia establishment, where she upheld the standard of decorum against the weakening habits of a deteriorated world for many years. As Mr. Thadler thought of this sweeping victory, he chuckled for the hundredth time. "'She ought to make good, and she will. Something's got to be done about it,' said he. Diantha had never liked Mr. Thadler. She did not like that kind of man in general, nor his manner toward her in particular. Moreover, he was the husband of Mrs. Thadler. She did not know that he was still the largest owner in the town's best grocery store, and when that store offered her special terms for her exclusive trade, she accepted the proposition thankfully. She told Ross about it, as a matter well within his knowledge, if not his liking, and he was mildly interested. "'I am much alarmed at this new venture,' he wrote, "'but you must get your experience. I wish I could save you. As to the groceries, those are wholesale rates, nearly. They'll make enough on it. Yours is a large order, you see, and steady.' When she opened her businessmen's lunch, Mr. Thadler had a still better opportunity. He had a reputation as a high flyer, 
and had really intended to sacrifice himself on the altar of friendship by patronizing and praising this undertaking, at any cost to his palate. But no sacrifice was needed. Diantha's group of day-workers had their early breakfast and departed, taking each her neat lunch-pail, they ate nothing of their employers, and both kitchen and dining-room would have stood idle till supper-time. But the young manager knew she must work her plant for all it was worth, and speedily opened the dining-room with the side entrance as a cafeteria, with the larger one as a sort of meeting-place, papers and magazines on the tables. From the counter you took what you liked, and seated yourself and your friends at one of the many small tables, or in the flat-armed chairs in the big room, or on the broad piazza, and as this gave good food, cheapness, a chance for a comfortable seat, and talk and a smoke if one had time, it was largely patronized. Mr. Thadler, as an experienced bon vivant, despised sandwiches. Picnicky makeshifts, he called them, railroad rations, bread and leavings. And when he saw those piles on piles of sandwiches listed only as number one, number two, number three, and so on, his benevolent intention wavered. But he pulled himself together and took a plateful, assorted. "'Come on, porn,' he said. "'We'll play it's a Sunday-school picnic.' and he drew himself a cup of coffee, finding hot milk, cream, and sugar crystals at hand. "'I never saw a cheap joint where you could fix it yourself before,' he said, and suspiciously taste the mixture. "'By jing, that's coffee!' he cried in surprise. "'There's no scum on the milk, and the cream's cream. Five cents. She won't get rich on this.' Then he applied himself to his number one sandwich, and his determined expression gave way to one of pleasure." "'Why, that's bread, real bread. I believe she made it herself.' "'She did, in truth. She and Juliana, with Hector as general assistant. "'The big oven was filled several times every morning. "'The fresh rolls disappeared at breakfast and supper. "'The fresh bread was packed in the lunch-pails, "'and the stale bread was even now melting away in large bites "'behind the smiling mouths and moustaches of many men. "'Perfect bread, excellent butter, and... "'What's the filling, I'd like to know?' More than one inquiring-minded patron split his sandwich to add sight to taste, but few could be sure of the flavorsome contents, fatless, gritless, smooth and even, covering the entire surface, the last mouthful as perfect as the first. Some were familiar, some new, all were delicious. The six sandwiches were five cents, the cup of coffee five, and the little drop cakes, sweet and spicy, were two for five. Every man spent fifteen cents, some of them more, and many took away small cakes and paper bags if there were any left. "'I don't see how you can do it and make a profit,' urged Mr. Eltwood, making a pastoral call. "'They are so good, you know.' Diantha smiled cheerfully. "'That's because all your ideas are based on what we call domestic economy, which is domestic waste. I buy in large quantities at wholesale rates, and my cook, with her little helper— the two maids, and my own share of the work, of course, provides for the lot. Of course, one has to know how. "'Wherever did you find, or did you create, those heavenly sandwiches?' he asked. "'I have to thank my laundress for part of that success,' she said. "'She's a Dane, and it appears that the Danes are so fond of sandwiches that in large establishments they have a sandwich kitchen to prepare them. It is quite a bit of work, but they are good and inexpensive.' There is no limit to the variety. 
As a matter of fact, this lunch business paid well and led to larger things. The girl's methods were simple and so organized as to make one hand wash the other. Her house had some twenty-odd bedrooms, full accommodations for kitchen and laundry work on a large scale, big dining, dancing, and reception rooms, and broad shady piazzas on the side. Its position on a corner near the business part of the little city, and at the foot of the hill crowned with so many millionaires and near millionaires as could get land there, offered many advantages, and every one was taken. The main part of the undertaking was a houseworkers union. A group of thirty girls, picked and trained, these, previously working out as servants, had received six dollars a week, and found. They now worked an agreed number of hours, were paid on a basis by the hour or day, and found themselves. Each had her own room, and the broad porches and ballroom were theirs, except when engaged for dances and meetings of one sort and another. It was a stirring year's work, hard but exciting, and the only difficulty which really worried Diantha was the same that worried the average housewife, the accounts. End of chapter 10